Hey, Mike, how's it going? Hey, Tristan, how you doing, man? Good, good. Sorry, a bit late. I had a work meeting that ran way over. You're all good. No worries. How you doing? Not too bad. It's a busy Monday, but, uh, you know, that's how it goes. Looking forward to some days off in the near future, even though we just had the winter break, too, so... <laughs> Yeah, man. Busy, busy is good. So, so now, what do you actually do? Because I saw recently that you were mentioning um, offering bison. Do you do you work on a farm or are you? No, no. Uh, I just work with a rancher right now, okay. and I'm trying to kind of get into that space. But I'm a, I'm an engineer by day. Oh, so cool. I got a, a corporate job. Luckily, I work remote, and it's pretty chill, more on the business side of things now. But yeah, so I'm able to do all this other stuff and Twitter and cool. sell bison and write a book. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. I was going to say, for, for people listening in the future, uh, Tristan Scott is the author of Bitcoin and Beef. Um, I, I ordered my copy today, and uh, I'm expecting it to come soon. Um, it's It's been on my list of things to read. Uh, but I just, um, I'm sure as you could relate, um, being a creator, you're trying to, uh, spend a lot of time, um, working on your own craft and it's hard to always yep. consume stuff. Um, so that's definitely on the top of my list to consume ASAP. Um, so now give me a little bit of your background, because I know that you've had a health journey of your own. Um, I'm going to ask you your orange pill story at one point. Uh, but but first, go into a little bit of detail about your health journey um, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I kind of had uh, one too many concussions in college. So that's how this all started. Okay. Um, most of them were probably uh, well, definitely a result of, of playing soccer. So I played soccer, high school, college. I really only had like one diagnosed concussion, but I definitely had a, probably a bunch that that were undiagnosed or just cumulative and I had one uh, after my college career ended shortly after where I just passed out, hit my head. I didn't really know that I had a concussion. Mm-hmm. So I was very ignorant of like the acute recovery phase and, you know, went skiing and like didn't really, you know, was drinking like <laughs> one to two weeks after, you know, this happened and I was just feeling horrible. And then that kind of spiraled into like multiple months of you know symptoms never going away so like all the classic like concussion symptoms of fatigue you know irritability light sensitivity noise sensitivity um so i had pretty bad post-concussive syndrome uh for like 15 months and um yeah i tried to go to like the neurologist and you know concussions are tough uh because they're an invisible injury like you can't really diagnose much and prescribe much from a recovery protocol especially when you mess up the acute like first two weeks um you're really in a bad place so i kind of went eventually got so frustrated like was like this is not like my new normal i can't i can't possibly like live like this for the rest of my life i'm just being so limited especially after being you know such a high productivity person in college while i was playing sports and going to engineering classes you know, that was a tough balance just in full capability. So I went down the self-healing rabbit hole, you know, started like meditating, started consuming all the podcasts, you know, books, YouTube videos about just like healing the brain and then specifically just living a healthy lifestyle. And I was always pretty healthy, like growing up, but 
you know, you get to college, everything goes out the window. So yeah, that's, uh, and then I just started feeling so much better. You know, I, I really made leaps and bounds and today I feel better now than I ever did before my injury. Um, so I just, I was hooked. And then from being super into health, I kind of went down the foods, you know, naturally you, right. you get into nutrition and diet and then you start asking and wondering about where your food comes from. I was going to ask then, you that next. Yeah. It kind of just like all led into that. You know, I started buying like quarter half cows from a friend of my sister, who's a rancher in Wyoming. And I was like, wow, this is great. And, you know, just kept learning more and more about regenerative agriculture, about the food system, about the corruption and centralization. And yeah, that kind of led me, you know, the last couple of years to just really digging deep into, into that space. So I'm really like a health nerd at heart. Uh, and then the Bitcoin stuff kind of also a passion, but I would say more so on the health food system side of things. The first time, I think one of the first tweets I saw of yours was in like September or August, it might've been. And it was, I think when you were getting a goat uh, butchered. Oh yeah. Yeah. We did a, like a whole goat roast, which was really cool because I was getting, it's getting raw goat's milk from this, uh, this farmer in Wyoming and my roommate has this giant box and he likes doing whole animal roasts. He's like, yeah, we should have a roast. You know, we just moved into this place in Salt Lake city. And I was like, Oh dude, I think I could get us a goat, like really cheap, yes. like, you know, grass fed. And yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was a great experience. So that was, that was fun. So now how many, how many years would you say that you've been eating mainly the way that you are now? Like, you know, very uh, much so grass fed meat, um, animal based stuff like that. How long have you been doing that now? Probably like two years of like kind of like the an more animal based, but just uh more honed in on on definitely the meat, grass fed meat side of things for probably three or four. So one thing that really helped me a ton, but I haven't done since, um, was a strict keto diet. Mm. Um, when I first kind of that was 2019. Wow. It's 2023 already. It's crazy. Crazy. Um, <laughs> because yeah, a ketogenic diet can be so powerful for, for healing your brain. Um, cause you kind of just have this, uh, you know, this energy gap and, you know, from the brain injury that you sustained. And it's also been proven for like Alzheimer's and dementia patients that going like really strict keto can kind of just light up your brain because the ketones can, can really bridge like the energy gap. But mm -hmm. when I did do that, I was still consuming like a lot of like vegetables. I was doing like a heavy meat and vegetable keto diet, not like a carnivore, strict carnivore. Um, and then, yeah, I kind of from there just, yeah, got more into the seasonal um, animal based diet. So that's, yeah, it's probably been like two, two and a half years now of that. And yeah, I feel great. I mean, always really kind of prioritize protein. I feel like my whole life, but I definitely for a large period of time, like did not eat a ton of like red meat. Like I feel like college, right. high school is a lot of chicken, you know, especially college, a lot of chicken, <laughs> broccoli, rice, like this nonsense. So, um, yeah, I, I can, I can relate a lot to your story. Um, I, I grew up playing soccer my entire life too. I played from like four until the end of high school. Um, nice. I kind of lost that competitive edge for it uh, going into college. Um, but as I learned more about concussions and I got a few concussions, um, I got one in Universal Studios on the back, wow. on the Back to the Future virtual reality ride when I was like 13. 
I was in the hospital for like three days. Um, I had really bad vertigo. Um, so I, I've been there with concussions too, and I'm sure playing competitive soccer, I've had a handful as well. Um, so I, I definitely was on a similar journey where I was trying to improve my brain health. Um, I felt that post concussion syndrome like you did too. Um, and, uh, it messed me up for a little bit. It really changed my personality or influenced my personality in my day to day. And, um, from that point I was messing around with nootropics a lot. Uh, and then eventually when I really started to get healthier and improve my diet is when I started to lose fat and really start to see the changes in how I felt. But for a while I was on a similar journey where I was trying to find anything that just made me feel better and, um, helped my state of mind. So I could agree that even me eating more animal-based grass-fed pasture-raised protein has definitely made me feel better. And, um, my body just feels like it's firing on all cylinders. So that's why someone like yourself, who's heavily involved in it and entrenched in the, the field, I, I, uh, I definitely wanted to pick your brain about. Um, so what, what is regenerative farming? I'm trying to learn more about that. So what is regenerative farming and, um, or like, you know, what involvement do you have in it? Because I've heard people like Rogan talk about it. I've heard people on his podcast talk about it. And uh, it's something that I've been wanting to learn more about myself. Yeah, no, this is a great place to dive into because I feel like uh, this has become almost like a trendy word right now. And uh, actually, someone asked me the same question earlier today, um, you know, for for like the bison business that I'm working with. They're like, yeah. Can you explain regenerative agriculture? I was like, yeah, um, because it's it's really what it is, is having a system that emulates nature and focuses on regenerating the soil. But why do we need to regenerate the soil? And that's because the farming practices that are most popular today across the world, which are of the industrial farming system and farming methodology, are severely degenerating the soil health, mm -hmm. which in turn reduces the so many elements of how you grow your food. There's less nutrients than there were like 100 years ago. And now we need all these you know, chemical inputs and you know how do we get to this place uh and that's because of the industrial farming system but if you go back even further how do we have so many fertile fertile lands in the u.s and that's because we had 50 60 million bison we had 10 million elk and we had so many large ruminants naturally just grazing the lands but they were constantly moving and they were being you know chased by predators like wolves or right. cougars um coyotes mostly wolves back in the day but that would keep them very tight and it would move them so that they would not miss a blade of grass in like a large mm. area but then they might not come back to that same area for like two three years wow. so in that very large rest period it's allowing the the soil all the the microbes and everything and you get all the fer fertilizer you know, from their excrement. And you also get, you know, the pounding of the hooves is driving that down into the soil further, but then everything grows back with more, um, you know, quality. You're, you're getting that regeneration through grazing it down, fertilizing it naturally. And then it has this very long rest period to be able to have that natural process. And then it comes back, same thing happens. So that hope happened over thousands and thousands of years 
and gave us like kind of like the most fertile soil in, in the world. And we were able, you know, that's why we were able to pretty much just grow anything. Right. Um, but the U.S., what the U.S. is really good at is, you know, going big or going home. So uh, and, and it started with a need to feed the world. And World War Two happened. There was a large hysteria in, you know, mid 20th century that the population would be like 10 billion by 2000. We wouldn't be able to feed anybody. So, you know, it was not to the fault of people trying to just make money and destroy the world. It was really just trying to feed the population. Right. So we used our industrial factory um, hat and turned that into farming, which led to a very high input, high output system. So um, at the turn of the century in 1900s, the average farmer was growing like five types of crops. Now they grow like 1.1 is the average. So wow. like they pretty much all grow just one crop. And it's predominantly, you know, soy, corn, wheat. And the problem with that is we're diver we diverge completely from a natural system. A natural system has a lot of diversity in the plant species. And it also has animals that graze, you know, like I was just mentioning. And when you go to a monoculture, you become so much less resilient and more susceptible to everything mm. because, you know, pests see, you know, whatever pest likes eating soybeans or wheat will see that it's like a giant buffet of right. like one crop that they just love to eat. However, if you have like 20 types of crops, you know, you're going to attract way more different types of bug species, but they're not going to destroy all your crops. And then simultaneously, you have other bugs and other animals that are eating the pests. So the whole monocrop culture and the reason why like veganism is a scam is because in order to grow like thousands and thousands of acres of soybeans, you pretty much have to kill everything else. And if you don't kill it from just the combines and, you know, tilling the soil, then you come in with Monsanto Roundup and that kills everything else. So then the only thing you have that's coming is like the pests to eat the crops. So in order to, you know, get rid of those, that's why they have to use Roundup. And they literally had to modify the crops genetically for, you know, that's where the GMO came about. So they could withstand these extremely harsh chemical inputs. And so all of this has just destroyed the health of the soil because healthy soil is a soil that's full of life. It's a full of biodiversity. And most of that biodiversity is beneath the ground in the form of microbes, nematodes, like small insects, like all these things. They're, you know, mycorrhizal fungi. They're harnessing the nutrients from above the ground, taking them below the ground. And then it's this natural cycle that's going on and they're storing carbon. They're using that as a currency of energy. And then that's all getting recycled back up into the plant that's growing to be more nutritious. So we pretty much just obliterated this whole like natural process. And at first, you know, it worked, you know, you grow, we grow like so many crops and we had super high yields. But now because the soil has been degraded for so long, we're starting to see like stagnated yields and they're coming up with like new techniques and new chemical inputs. And it's just, you know, we're at the point of, we have dirt, we don't have soil <laughs> and that's what we're facing. So regenerative agriculture is taking the state that we're in right now. And every, you know, every piece of land is different. 
but using more natural methods, holistic methods that emulate nature. And that's rotational grazing. That's with ruminants because you get, you know, their excrement that fertilizes the soil. You get, you know, the, the, just their, their hooves kind of getting all this nutrition into the ground and you're doing biodiverse crop species, rotational crop cropping as well, not monocrop, no chemical inputs or very little, and then no tilling of the soil. People think like, you know, the plow is like the greatest thing, greatest invention of the world, but like you're disrupting a natural ecosystem. And when you fully till a soil, it's really horrible for the health of the soil. And thus in the long term, you know, your operation. So it's restoring all these natural processes. And then over time, that will increase the health of the soil, the organic matter of the soil. And why do it? Why go through all this effort? Because over time, you can get higher yields. When you have higher organic matter in the soil, you can hold more water. It's like every 1% of organic matter increase can hold like 20,000 more wow. gallons per acre of water. So, you know, Joe on Joe Rogan, Will Harris was like talking about that and showing like the two videos of water sliding off his ranch and like his neighbor's ranch. One right. was like clear and one was like fully dark brown because it's just running off all his soil he doesn't have anything to absorb it so you're talking about water is one of the biggest issues today right it's like how do we you know have the water to use for farming and livestock and it comes down to you know how resilient and healthy is your soil to be able to when that one or two thunderstorms a year come and dump like you know 10 inches of rain can you actually harness even a fraction of that So that's what it's all about. It's really trying to get away from this industrial farming system and give back to the soil what we took from it by returning to more natural and holistic methods. That was a phenomenal explanation. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I I love that you told me that you're an engineer because I would have probably guessed that you're an engineer. I love talking with engineers because um, your your brains work in a very process-oriented way. Uh, So that, that was awesome. Um, it's, it's really interesting because it seems like that makes so much sense. It, it seems like that is the way things should be. And it's very logical, you know, very logical. Yeah. And, um, how, how, or what percentage would you say of us farmland is regenerative? Oh, it's gotta be less, less, less than 1%. I mean, It's really an issue because, and I was thinking about this the other day, because there's a lot of people who do it like kind of the right way, but like truly regenerative. I mean, it's definitely less than 1% because really big food controls like at least 90% of Of like farmland. farmland. And then of all the small guys, they might be doing it like not as bad, but are they really doing it fully regenerative? I, I doubt it. It's, it's such a small it's really just getting started, which is you need. Do you need more land for regenerative farming? Is that why that? No, it's just it's the whole problem is right now is we have so many government incentives. So everybody grows corn and soybeans because they're because subsidized because they're government. And they yeah. if you have a hundred acre farm, a two hundred acre farm, it doesn't even matter. You're just growing corn, wheat, or soybeans because you're getting guaranteed income from the government. Doesn't matter if hail destroys all your crops, 
doesn't matter if the pests eat half of it or whatever happens, you're going to get a guaranteed check from the government for growing that. If you leave that system, you're taking a huge risk and you don't, you know, you might not know right. what you're doing. And the other problem is most of these farmers, the average age of a farmer in the U S is like 60 something. Wow. So they're not going to just, you know, how hard is it to convince a person in their sixties to change their mind about anything right. and let alone their whole livelihood of what they've been doing for 50 years, because that's like all they know. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. So there's not a lot. Um, it doesn't take more land. You can actually, you know, after a couple years, you can get more out of your land and make more money because you're also turning it into like an organic naturally raised product, which people are willing to pay a premium for. And right. then if you know how to utilize like animals as a part of that, you know, you can really make way more money, but you know, people don't know what they don't know. So that's the whole reason why education around this topic is so imperative. I agree. And that's a big reason as to why I'm even doing this podcast is just to uh, try to learn more myself and share what I'm learning with other people that are um, interested in learning about that stuff. Um, so now where does Bitcoin come into this? Because I am I am the Bitcoin guy for my family, friends, and everyone, <laughs> everyone that I know. I've been headfirst into it since... I don't know, mid 2017. So um, I'm pretty familiar with Bitcoin. I'm comfortable talking Bitcoin. But as I'm still learning more about it day by day, I'm now seeing people like you and other people on Twitter talk about um, the relationship between Bitcoin and big agriculture or big pharma. And um, it's it's interesting because my brain starts to think about it and I see the connection, obviously, to money. Um, but I'm curious to see if you can speak on it a little bit more, especially with Bitcoin and big agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. I'd hope so. I wrote a book on this. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really all comes down to the reasons why we're in this mess in the first place is due to over centralization and why that has all occurred. I mean, you could argue that pretty much all of these issues in our society are a result of being on a fully fiat monetary standard. Um, but there's so many parallels and, and it really just goes back to, like I said, why decentralization matters. So, um, you know, with regenerative agriculture, why, you know, why is this such an issue? Um, why is the food system so messed up? Because it's so top heavy, you know, four beef packers control 80% of the market, 80%. So they're all multinational companies. They all act on their own agenda to just increase their top line revenue. So that's why you see like most of the beef in the U.S. gets sold to or even a large majority gets sold to China, Korea, Taiwan. And then if you just go to the grocery store, um, the quote unquote grass fed beef you're buying is probably from Argentina, Brazil, um, Australia or New Zealand even though you could be in the Midwest or wherever and you could have like a ranch five miles down the road, that's probably going to China. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous because they can make more money uh, doing it that way. And then it's cheaper for grocery stores to import it. So, and then if you want to talk about like processed foods, I mean, like Nestle and Unilever and all these craft General Mills, they're controlling like such a large portion of our food system. And why, how did it come to this? You know, you could, it, it all started with, you know, I said the notion to feed the world, but 
there's a few inflection points that that are really interesting and and i'll kind of touch on touch on one of them it's like nine what what the fuck happened in 1971 right <laughs> it's one of my favorite yeah so so nixon of course took us off the gold standard that year but when it comes to food what else did he do he appointed uh, secretary of agriculture earl butts whose literal motto was go big or go home wow. so this guy is kind of like he put all this effort and so much momentum into growing only soybeans corn and grains you know like wheat so we could sell them all to you know export them at extremely high price because grains were at a very high um, price uh, globally because of the cold war so he he kind of um, orchestrated this giant grain sale to the soviets uh, during his tenure and was like, yeah, we could export all this grain, you know, it's gonna be so good for the economy and all this. And, you know, every farmer should just go all in on grains, you know, buy all the equipment, buy more land, buy more chemical inputs. So farmers took out all this, all these loans um, yeah. across the 70s and just went big or went home. And then eventually, you know, the supply skyrocketed. And the price came way down. And what else happened across the 70s? Stagflation. So interest rates went through the roof. And yeah, by the you know turn of the decade, a ton of these farmers went bankrupt. Wow. And we had nobody to buy those, you know, this massive amount of grains. And that kind of whole mess was, was a huge issue in the 80s then. And that whole mess kind of led to this subsidization of crops and more government intervention. So that's kind of what it all comes down to, right? Like so that, the that, collapse, that collapse of the farmers in the 80s is what led to government getting more involved in subsidies. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that kind of led to just more government intervention. And then you see, you know, their absurd number of, you know, subsidies since like 1990 in the late wow. 80s as a result of this, like we're talking bill hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and just more control, you know, government intervention in our food system. And, and that's a common theme is like when government, you know, has to get, has to intervene during like a downturn instead of letting the market forces, you know, do what it needs to do. Same thing with printing money. Right. I mean, yeah. they should just let everything kind of pan out, but you know, they have to act upon for their society or so they think, per the, you know, Keynesian economic school of thought that pretty much every economy runs off of uh, instead of, you know, letting it run its course. So that's a cool inflection point. But yeah, really, it comes down to, yeah, the centralization. So how do we solve this whole centralized mess, which has robbed kind of the average citizen of their health and their wealth because they're, you know, eating highly processed food, they're fully disconnected from how their food is raised. And they're buying it with, you know, of money that's being devalued by the day because of this excess monetary, you know, expansion uh, as a result of poor government policy decisions and just poor economic decisions over the last, you know, 30 to 100 years since the Fed was created. Um, and it's just returning to a more decentralized model, right? So on, on the monetary side of things, that's where, you know, Bitcoin comes in, you know, fixed supply. Yeah. Uh, program scarcity native to the internet easily transactable and then that's where regenerative agriculture comes in and you always hear people like joe rogan oh well can we scale regenerative agriculture i was i was gonna say yeah i've heard like that's that's that like this that's the problem with like the whole mindset it's like can we scale this isn't like a business it's it's a right. system and in order to scale a system from a decentralized fashion 
that can be scaled to any degree. I mean, what if, you know, Joel Salatin, who's a pioneer of the regenerative agriculture space, goes, what if everybody who had even, you know, a hundred square feet mm. vigil or the community level, it's not like one big company can just, you know, white oak pastures could just feed the whole country if they just right. grew and grew and grew. That's the problem. It's replication and it's kind of a decentralized way of thinking about food within your community, not vertically scaling it like a big food model, you know, as we know and see. I, I feel like that's happening in all facets of life and in, in all areas. Uh, what I mean, it's happening in certain areas faster than others, or at least the pace or the rate of change is happening faster than others. But I'm seeing it happen in money and Bitcoin. Um, and I'm seeing it in myself uh, and people around me that aren't even privy to this stuff, but they're thinking about where they could buy their food from to get better food and uh, where it's sourced. Yeah. So I'm, seeing, I'm seeing people that aren't even in these conversations or in these, uh, you know, systems that they're starting to think that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's either by force or it's by choice. Well, well, COVID has really put all of this like to the forefront. So, I mean, now everybody's aware of like, you know, how bad inflation is and, you mm -hmm. know, you know, the devaluation of our currency. So, and then also the, you know, the supply chain issues have, have caused a lot of people to kind of get really scared about, you know, where are they getting their food from, but still the overwhelming majority are willing to trade convenience for quality and assurance yes. on a daily basis. And that's kind of what we've done we've traded our convenience or our quality for convenience, you know, Uber Eats, DoorDash, all this from a food system perspective, or just going to the grocery store and, you know, picking out what you want. I mean, that's like a luxury, like that that's didn't a luxury. exist a hundred years ago. Like this is, this is all like so new before it would be go down the street, you know, trade with your neighbor and, you know, <laughs> barter some meat for, you know, some eggs or for some plants that you grew in your garden, in your backyard, or you had a pig in your backyard that you'd slaughter like every, you know, half a year. And uh, we're so disconnected from our food system. And then the same thing with money, right? We just give our money to the banking system who loans it out 10 times over in a fractional reserve Ponzi scheme. Why? because it's backed by the FDIC and, you know, there our money is safe, but if you go to pull out all your money and you had more than 20 grand, like they wouldn't even let you. <laughs> so we're really just being played on all fronts. And it's, I really think of it how like everything is tied to this like insatiable need to just grow. Yes. And that's because of the fiat monetary system that we're in. So everything you see is a result of needing to beat inflation from like a business perspective, because all these companies have to stand in front of investors because all the rich people want to keep making money because they know this is all just being propped up by more economic growth. So that's mm -hmm. why you see, you know, pharmaceuticals, John Rockefeller just like created this industry <laughs> with oil byproducts just to make more money. And now that's just like keeps on going. And then the processed foods, there's there's not that much profit margin just selling meat or just selling like produce. Like grocery stores make no money. Right. But processed food companies, if you make it in a factory and you use highly subsidized, highly processed ingredients like high fructose corn syrup, soybean oil, and as a part of the industrial, you know, monocrop farming system, 
then there's actually a lot of money to be made because you can scale it and it's made in a machine. Why do you think all these big meat packers, they're actually one of the biggest investors in like plant-based foods and lab-based meats. Wow. Because they don't actually care about meat versus plants. They just want to make money. And they know that beef is not really scalable. It takes, you know, at, at least 16 to 18 months to raise a feedlot, you know, beef when you could make lab meat, who, I mean, you can make an infinite amount of lab meat. You can make an infinite amount of soy burgers just made of absolute garbage in like warehouses and factories and they get that. So they're not going to be left on the sidelines. So I always tie it back to that. It's like this insatiable need to grow and grow and grow economically. And that's what all their politicians, you know, make decisions off of. They just know we need to keep growing or else this is all going to like, fall it's all going to collapse it's a giant well fiat and, ponzi and and i i love that you brought that up because i think about what you just said with that insatiable need to grow and expand i think about that with technology in general and human beings relationship with te with technology when i ask myself you know what was the earliest form of technology like i don't know uh, i could be wrong but I'm just assuming like, I don't know, um, the first stone that we were able to roll like as a wheel, like, I, I don't know, like um, it, it could be anything like that, but it really was to make our lives more convenient. And you hit it on the head when you said that we're trading. Uh, what'd you say? You said we're trading convenience, convenience for quality or quality, convenience, for convenience. quality for yeah. convenience. And that's really what it is. And I think the what the fuck happened in 1971 um, maybe just accelerated that and it just like you know put that same insatiable desire that we have to grow with technology to continue to expand and i don't really know what our relationship with technology is about and why we continue to innovate but it seems like we got a little bit off course when we um uh like you know impacted money in the way that we did and we devalued it over time um, but yeah, you, you made me think about that, that we do have this insatiable desire to continuously make our lives more convenient. But as we are, especially in this point in time, it's lessening the quality of our life to the degree that it doesn't pay off anymore. That convenience is actually a detriment. Yeah, no, totally. And, and it's interesting to think because there, I mean, the last 120 years, like so many great things have, you know, innovations have happened. But right. I mean, a lot of innovations happen like on a gold standard, like during, you know, other empires and things like that, because there is no, you know, pressure. But it's yeah, it's it's really strange because that's all we know. Right. Like that's all like the exactly. United States knows as kind of like its short term history. But yeah, really, it's it's interesting to think about how it's all going to kind of play out and uh, what will really happen. I mean, we already see like the weakening of, you know, the global reliance on the U.S. dollar, especially with yeah, Russia, Russia, Ukraine. So it's kind of an exciting time to, you know, be a part of this. But it's also sad because like you, you want to just bring as many people over to this side. And, you know, it's tough because it does take a lot more personal responsibility. Um, yes. But that's like what it should like, you need to, you know, verify not trust, right? Like based on that methodology, and uh, you need to get educated on these topics, but no one will educate you if you just go through the traditional, you know, route of education, and then corporate job, like social media, like, you're never going to find out about this stuff, unless you start wanting to 
deliberately take that route. Yeah, man. So then on that note, how, what was your orange pill moment? How did you find out about Bitcoin? What made you a believer? When was it? Yeah, I mean, I, I really started in the crypto rabbit hole, like in college in 2017 and just okay. really, you know, engineer at a tech school, just fascinated with, you know, future money trying to make some money, all that. And I learned my lesson the hard way, like many <laughs> times. And then kind of, yeah, I was definitely more convinced and fully switched over to just Bitcoin um, when when everything happened with with COVID and like just got really more into the macroeconomic situation that we're in and it was from there it was a no-brainer and then when i made the connection and started writing this book that it's all about you know just having this increased you know personal sovereignty individual sovereignty and, and being my own bank and being you know responsible for for that with an actual form of hard money and that's what it was all about because for me when I was concussed, I realized it's like I was robbed of all of these freedoms. I was so limited. And now like all I want to do is I just want to be in control of like all aspects of my life. And I don't want to outsource nearly anything um, if I don't have to, especially the two most important things, which, yeah, your health and your wealth. Um, you really should have that motivation to be in charge of it, those things and not trade that for you know, convenience. Right. And I, I completely agree. I'm on the same page. So now you even being on the, on the, uh, the, the ground floor with farmers, I feel like the Bitcoin ethos is right up their alley. I feel like that is everything that they're also thinking themselves. Are they responsive to maybe shifting to a Bitcoin standard or what's their thoughts on it? Are any of, do they, any of them even know about Bitcoin since they're usually on average 60 and older what's that like yeah it's it's interesting because uh yeah that's a big momentum right now um you know the beef initiative is doing a lot of great stuff in that space and their whole motto is like exchanging value for value which is fantastic and it's about you know like we just said if, if you get connected with a, a local rancher you verify they have you know a regenerative right. or just you know a great pasture raised operation and you want to have that, you know, security from a food standpoint, then you should really, you know, value that and therefore go and educate them about Bitcoin and then get them set up with the hardest form of money because that'll be doing them a service, you know, down the road. So yeah, it's, uh, I would say it's always some apprehension to start. I mean, like you said, there, a lot of these guys are older, you know, they'll be like, oh, what is this magic internet money? <laughs> but then if you start to explain with them how this is like inconfiscatable and, you know, this is all about like personal and individual sovereignty and how we've been robbed by the government and they'll, they'll start to listen for sure. So there, there's some momentum in this space, um, but really it needs to happen at the, the local level, right? Like, in your community, you just need to go out and start educating producers on Bitcoin and also regenerative methods because that's still like a very small fraction like we talked about. And uh, that could really propel your local community forward. And uh, yeah, that's the most important about increasing Bitcoin adoption and then keeping all of that good stuff, the food and the Bitcoin in a local circular economy. What a time to be alive, man. Yeah, uh, it's it's really it, it really is. I, I think about that all the time. I'm not in, involved in obviously the the beef industry like you are or regenerative agriculture, but just even me watching it uh, from from where I am in, in New York City, 
um it's it's pretty cool it gives me some hope it it uh it, it incentivizes me to learn more to get curious and um it makes me happy that i feel like i could actually continue to put my health and my life in my own hands like you're saying um i don't think many people think about that on a daily basis i think many are just drifting and they they might be doing their best with what they know and where they are uh but i feel like once you open your eyes to this stuff and what we're talking about there's no turning back yeah no it usually takes like a pretty substantial life event to like come over to 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 the dark side um (laughs) to the good side really um because yeah you take everything for granted i mean everything's just going like you're saying you're drifting you're just coasting through life i mean things are all right i mean your priorities especially as young adults they're just so backwards you're just worried about you know making through the week and your corporate job and getting smashed on fridays (laughs) and whatever it's just like you're just part of the rat race. And one of these days, you just, something's going to happen. Your health is going to take a nosedive, your finances, you'll get laid off or something will happen. And, you know, everyone knows about Bitcoin, but they don't really even know how it works. They don't understand the fundamentals of decentralization and how that plays a role in the greater macroeconomic environment in such a valuable way. I mean, there's so many people and that's fantastic for us because like right now it's on fire sale and it's a good time to what stack a great stats. time to accumulate. I know. I hope, I hope it stays low for like two more years, but <laughs> yeah, eventually, you know, it's uh, the masses will, will come, but they really just need to get rid of this, uh, this low or low time frame thinking the short yes. time preference because uh that's the other big connection is short like time start, preference. Yeah. When you start thinking in like multi-year time segments or, you know, multi-generational, like even me, I'm 26 and I'm like, all I want to do is set my family up that my future family up to have the best life possible to live in the, live in the cleanest environment, not have to worry about, you know, financial difficulties. And that's, you know, 20 plus years down the road so you know bitcoin has never been in the red over what three or four years regenerative agriculture yeah you're talking like five years down the road when you really start to see an improvement and then even from there it just compounds you know so people really need to start you know elongating their their thinking in terms of their goals and what they want to achieve but it's hard when there's so many short term, everything is just getting more compressed in terms of dopamine and serotonin. And a click. Everything's at a click. Yeah, everything's a click. It's a TikTok. It's a reel. It's, you know, get fucked up on the weekends because that makes me happy and I'm in pain and I'm depressed. But this is a relief for the short term. Get You need to get over that because nothing good will happen to you when you live on a day by day basis. And it's so hard to get out of that but boy if you can you'll be in the top one percent of people real quick that's it that's that's a good way to say it and i think my bitcoin education or from my bitcoin education the number one lesson that i learned was my time preference or i i became more aware of my time preference in everything and anything and just like you said so in 2017 when i first heard about it i was 27 now i'm 32 and uh at 27, I never thought that I would be thinking about generational implications of my decision making, but I was because of Bitcoin. Bitcoin made me think much longer than I ever did in my life. And from there, because you see the benefits of that 
longer time horizon, that delayed gratification, you start to make connections with where you've seen that in your life previously, right? Like you became a good athlete uh, in soccer, right? And that wasn't from not practicing probably six to seven times a week. That was from tirelessly practicing and pushing your body for over a decade that you were able to play in college. Um, people don't always make those connections and become aware of what they're doing when they're doing it, especially when they're young like that. So Bitcoin has been one of the best, I guess, educations I think I've, I've ever had, if not the best, it's been more impactful than my college degree, than my master's. Um, it's maybe on par with my jujitsu, uh, uh, like, you know, journey that yeah, yeah, it humbles you, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, so do you think that regenerative farming will be adopted or kind of grow in an organic way, kind of like Bitcoin, like in a very decentralized person to person edge, like educating, talking about it like this and, uh, going forward, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, I think it is already kind of on that route. Um, for sure. It's become like trendy, like for people to kind of like go homestead and everything and, you know, start more regenerative processes, which is good. Right. Um, but I think the larger operations will, will look more into it because like I said, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a no brainer in terms of like, if you want to maintain the healthier soil, like you'll get higher output over time. But the biggest thing really is like, you can charge a premium for these products. And, and what I tweeted about, I think the other day is like the price of food has been held so artificially low for so long because of these like ridiculously large companies and subsidized products that, you know, people get sticker shock when they see like how much our pound of regenerative farm beef right. is. And uh, yeah, no, it's not $4 a pound like Walmart beef. You know why? <laughs> because it's actually raised properly. It's not shipped in from Australia, like by a company that's worth a hundred billion dollars. Like it just, and they're all grain fed. So they get fattened up, you know, 50% more and they kill them at 16 months when regenerative processes are usually at two years plus um, because it takes longer to fatten up on, on just grass. So yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of, market forces that are actually trending in the positive direction and why is that because the education is spreading the knowledge is spreading and the most important power you as an individual have in this country is not at the ballot box it's with your consumer purchasing dollar yeah. and that is really like changed i mean general mills acquired epic for a hundred million dollars you know primal kitchen um, they see the value in more natural foods because the consumer is asking for it because the internet and the education around like transparency and you know qualities is that need and that desire is is growing and uh, yet people are willing to pay more if it's locally raised and it's higher quality and now there's more research coming out um, about like nutrition advantages as well so if you actually think about it you're you're paying the same right. for nutrients but in reality. You know, it's a little bit more upfront, but what's the long-term benefit, long-term thinking, right. infinite ROI on your health. You save on some hospital bills too. In the exactly. Future. Then you don't have to be a part of the whole pharmaceutical scam. You know, the average person above the age of 60 in this country has two or more chronic diseases and, you know, multiple medications. So what, you know, what cost is that at? So yeah, I think, uh, 
people are starting to wake up, but we need to just keep, keep pushing because it's, it's, uh, it's so important. So I really think that the regenerative movement will continue. I think uh, the carbon, whatever happens with all this carbon credit nonsense might have a big yeah. implication because actually it could be a positive for regenerative agriculture. Um, because, How so? Well, because beef and ruminants and livestock that are raised regeneratively sequester carbon, like the soil okay. is the biggest, one of the biggest carbon sinks in the world. Like if we just, everyone snapped their fingers and everything was a more regenerative process. We could sequester so much carbon over the next like 30 years by just doing that and uh, keeping it where it's supposed to be um, in the ground. And then part of this natural carbon cycle. Um, yeah, that that's a big one. So I'm not a fan of any of this carbon <laughs> legislation, of course, but um, trying to keep it, it positive. If yeah. it has one positive impact, yeah, it, it could be that. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, I, I'm optimistic because uh, I think uh, it's there's some momentum. And I've talked to some people that are they're talking to some of these big corporations, like you know the 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 top ten meat packers and stuff. And you know they they know they're not dumb. They know the I was trends. Say, they, they have to know. And uh, they know. they're they're investigating how to move more you know, not all of it, but a percentage of their operations to, you know, more regenerative or more pasture raised or, or buying up more of these smaller companies are doing the right way. So I know a lot of people in this space are very pessimistic, um, but you have to just do your part and then hope that the consumer dollar and spread of education and knowledge kind of helps move the, the market forces in, in the right direction. And I think that will happen because ultimately I'm a firm believer in the truth prevailing and, uh, and ultimately the truth kind of leaves you speechless. And um, this makes too much sense for it not to pan out over time, I think. So I think uh, for the rest of our lives, I have a feeling we'll end up smiling uh, uh, wider and wider um, as we're watching this unfold. So when you're looking in the future, where do you see your role in this industry? What are some of your goals? What are you looking to do? Yeah, so I'm kind of trying to yeah get more into the the food agriculture space. So right now I'm I'm selling bison for this rancher in Wyoming. We're looking to launch more products as well. Bison are really cool. They're the you know native large ruminant of North America. They're more resilient. They do take more uh, you know effort in terms of raising. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm doing right now to get involved. So if any of your listeners are interested in that. Um, and then, you know, further down the line, I'd love to have, you know, the goal, ultimate goal is to have my own operation it might just be small scale to feed friends and family it might be larger, not quite sure. Um, but for sure, I want some land and I want to raise, you know, family in the, you know, healthiest, cleanest way possible. And, be in the ultimate control of, you know, my own food and uh, the environment I'm in. So yeah, but also continuing education, you know, growing on social media, and then kind of just continuing to spread this message, uh, because it's so important. Um, in terms of regenerative agriculture, decentralization, you know, at a high level, and how people can get involved. Um, so if you're listening to this, and you don't really know where to start, um, definitely, Get connected with your local producers, go to your local farmer's market, see what they have available, you know, ask them questions. And, you know, if you're a Bitcoiner, educate them on Bitcoin, exchange value for value and just keep it local. And um, 
then you can get involved. You know, they might need help if you want to get dive even deeper. These producers love people, especially younger folks that are willing to learn and willing to offer help because they know how important it is. Most producers are selling wholesale. If they can get more direct to consumer, they're going to make more money. And then everyone's, it's going to be a win-win for everybody. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say. What do you, what do you think is that catalyst? That's going to be that shift. Is it just eventually, like you're saying enough individuals making that change for themselves and then eventually it just becomes the norm before we realize it? Or do you think that there's like a specific catalyst that? Yeah, I think that's already happening at the individual level. I mean, there's just, just so much going on, right? I mean, like there's a bird quote unquote bird flu right now. You can only buy like Dude. one or two cartons of eggs. And it's I was like, gonna, I, people I, I, are I, like, I'm, oh, fuck that. I want to go to a farmer and have like an unlimited supply of eggs or, you know, same with beef, you know, somebody's right. going to the store. There's like no meat left. Uh, okay. stop, you know, people are just, people are going to continue to get fed up with the system. Um, and the education is going to continue to spread. So I, I think, uh, was my yeah, force. It'll, it'll just go from there. And uh, hopefully, yeah, that's uh, that's enough. But can you can you give me some insight on that uh, egg shortage? Because <laughs> I got I got pretty pissed off when I saw that the the eggs I was typically buying were doubled in price over the span of a week. And uh, I've been looking into it. and I was even telling my friends they had no idea what was going on. But yeah, do you have yeah, any? Yeah, I, I haven't um, you know taken a deep dive, but I don't even need to because. There's been so many examples over the past like decade where, you know, big food companies have purposely created shortages to kind of like increase the, the, the price of their products or just control the price of, you know, beef, eggs, chicken, whatever it is. So, you know, there probably is a bird flu going around, but is it really that serious? You know, they killed the USDA killed like tens of millions of birds or I don't know, Josh Rayner was posting about it, my friend. And I was like, yeah, you know, it doesn't surprise me um, because they're just going to justify charging more. And then, you know, those prices will just, prices. well, they'll just stay high and then, right. you know, every, the supply will be back and, you know, people will be like, oh my God, I need to buy like so many eggs now because <laughs> they're going to run out again in like two months, but then they won't ever run out and then they'll just make more money because now people are buying more than they did before at a higher price. I mean, people yeah. are going to be forced. People are going to be forced into looking into what we're talking about. And even me working as a health coach, um, I think all the time how I can help the most people get into better shape physically so that they could start to feel better mentally. Um, and uh, there are some things that work for some and some things don't work for others. But I'm realizing it really comes down to you either have to get forced or backed into a corner to where you'll act. Um, or you have to be aware enough to see others, uh, you know, get fucked up or backed into a corner that advises you to act. Yeah. Like the whole diet culture, like 80, 20 mindset. I mean, I think it's all bullshit because it's like, you're just giving yourself some excuse to like, you know, cheat on your meal or your health or whatever. It's like, you, you kind of have to just dive fully in. Like you, you just have to, you, you can't like, and that's why diets don't work because a diet is something you do for a short period of time. Like typically in t- today's, you know, methodology and definition of the word. And that's why you, I see all these people that like go from being a vegan to being carnivore. I'm like, what? 
that's like you're the you're what's wrong <laughs> like that mindset is so stupid like you just need to realize what's mm-hmm. going on instead of just following the latest trend and and you'll be in a way better place like don't stress out about like eating a sweet potato or something like it's really just use common sense but you have to really change your mindset i mean if your mindset is not um in the right place you're not you're not going to accomplish anything and uh that's the hardest part is, is training your mind. So I, yeah, I, I thought I wanted to be a health coach and I was like, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot deal with people who are like not on board. Like I it's just tough, can't man. It's it. tough. It's tough because I, I hold myself to pretty high standards and um, I've had to do a lot of learning on not projecting those onto anyone else and trying to meet people. Yeah. Who are because it's like you, 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 we have experienced such profound improvements in the quality of our lives by you know completely altering our lifestyles so when people are like half in half out you're like you're you're not going to get like 80 percent of the benefits are not going to come if you just don't fully commit and it's like you have to really convince them and it's not like some crazy like david goggins shit you need to do like it's really just consistency and consistency but if you're doing like the 80 20 which I think is bullshit because it's like, if you're waiting for that 20% of meals that you can just eat whatever the hell you want, and then you're going to have to travel or whatnot, and you're not going to be in the right situation, it'll end up being like 60, 40. And then if you're at 60, 40, you're not going to make any gains. You might as well just be at 50, 50 then. You You might might as well just do whatever you were doing before. So (laughs) yeah, it's like, uh, you might as well not even worry about your percentages at that point. And people are always looking for that magic pill or that magic, like these, these basic accounts that just post these, these generic, you know, threads on Twitter about like how they can get away with eating all this crap. Right. And it's like, you know how you can get away with eating, you know, foods that you think are junk foods is if you use high quality ingredients to make them yourself and you work hard and you are active, like it's that simple, like ice cream. I mean, how many raw ice cream recipes are out there? And I really think, that's a that could that is a healthy food from a it could be a health food yeah yeah but if you're a fucking couch potato and you don't burn any calories i don't care if it's the purest <laughs> raw ice cream in the world like that's still a high calorie food and like you don't even deserve to eat that if you haven't walked outside your room today so you should earn those calories yeah i mean at point. the end of the day like it's a it's everything is is part of the equation and you're going to feel a lot better if, if you just get into a more consistent routine, no matter what do, it is. Do you think Do you think most people's challenge with that is that the scope of what we're talking about is too broad or like it's too wide to, is that is that the challenge that we're talking about? Like the scope of everything that we're touching on and the choices that we're talking about making each day and making those choices through the lens of delayed gratification or a longer time horizon is it just too much for people to handle at once? And uh... they just don't conceptualize that. That is the whole problem. I think the reason why it doesn't work for so many people is because they can never truly set their mind to thinking with a low time preference to thinking long term. They really like the whole fitness bodybuilding culture is like so toxic because it's like, you know, if you just do this and you eat chicken broth, like, you're not even enjoying anything you're doing. It's like you go to the gym because you feel like you have to. I go to the gym because it's like my favorite part of the day. I turn my phone on airplane mode and I feel so great afterwards. I have this sense of fulfillment 
and accomplishment. And then I reward that with highly nutritious food. And, you know, I wake up on the weekends and ski and hike because that's awesome, fulfilling and I'm connecting with nature and it's mentally rewarding. And, you know, I'm not like going out on a Friday night because like, I want to just get drunk as shit. And like, that's how I'm dealing with my horrible week of work. Like, this low time preference thinking translates to everything you do. And if you have a shitty job, like make a purposeful decision about it. If you live in a place where you don't live, want to live, like move, like the only person holding you back is yourself. And really you just have to change your mindset and everything else will fall into place if, if you can do that, but it's the hardest thing to do. So dude, well said, man. That's um, life. <laughs> I was going to say that's, that's life in a nutshell. That, that really is it in a nutshell. And uh, I've, I've loved this conversation with you. I feel like we could do this for hours, especially if we were in person, where can people find you if they want to just, uh, you know, get in contact with you or learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter, as you know, so at Bitcoin and underscore beef. Um, uh, my book, Bitcoin and beef is available on Amazon Definitely check it out. It's also for you Bitcoiners available on the Oshi app if you want to pay with Bitcoin. The audiobook version I'm working on right now, finally. So hopefully that'll be out by March is the target. Um, also on Instagram, Tristan underscore health and Bitcoin and beef posts, you know, more pictures, videos there. But most of my content's definitely focused on Twitter nowadays. Cool, man. Tristan, really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. Of course.